Al Shaw. I just want to check that real quick. So uh, I thought it was important that being the fact that we won't be here next week with the election and all, that we uh, cover some important headlines from a trusted uh, Christian news source, uh, the Babylon Bee. <laughs> These are some of my favorite headlines. Uh, Dewey's the, the, he's the reason that I look at this now. So the first one, running late for church, local man easily locates where he's left his Bible last Sunday. Number two, this obviously is the case here all the time. These are massive headlines, things that, that are pretty surprising. Bible study starts on time. Another one, not so surprising. Brief after church meeting, still going. <laughs> and then my favorite. Man chooses himself as his own accountability partner. Okay, a little funny, but uh, let's go ahead and get into the word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 through 22. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And that's what I want to focus on. Lord, I pray that you please bless the reading of your word, Lord. I pray that we would be men that are not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That you would impact the remainder of this time. Lord, that we be equipped to carry out your word in all of our lives, that we'd be equipped to act as living temples, living sanctuaries, available to you, Lord, and impactful for others. We love you, and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's three things that I got from this. Was one. Uh, one was unity, this idea that unity exists in Christ and is the truth. Number two, the access. We have access strictly through one source, through our Savior, or as I spelled it, savoir, you know, okay, Anybody picked up on that one? That's pretty good. Okay. And then three is that, is that the result of that access and that unity results in a new temple, not an old one. Okay? So unity today. Unity today is about as deep as a bumper sticker. You know, this idea of coexist, this, this synchronist idea that all roads, right, lead to one truth. Okay? When from, from the Christian perspective, it's probably closer to the fact that all truth leads to one road, leads to Christ. And this idea that we're in one household, that we are what it says here, that we're fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household in this foundation of this structure that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets whose chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. That that's, that's our unity. That's the structure that we live in. Now the interesting thing is that when it speaks to this idea of for those who are far away, and those who are near, the Gentiles, and the Jewish believers of the time, that this is the manner in which they gained access, right? They gained access through one body, through one death, through one life, through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we gain access and the only way that we come to the Father. But the interesting thing is, where is that body? So we say that it's joined together. 
that these two have become one. Back in, let's say, the biblical times, before the temple's destroyed, we would know exactly where that would occur. The physical location, the geographic location, would be at the temple. Right? But where is that body today? Okay? So today, it would be this new temple. And what it says is, in him, the whole building, joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And this is the part that excites me, is that, and you too, we, me, us too, are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And what, what I can testify to you right now is, is that in being in your fellowship in this past year, and I've told a few people, this has been the single most impactful year of my entire walk with Christ. That the guys I hang out with on Saturday mornings, the guys that I've had breakfast with on Thursday mornings, the guys that I've prayed with on Friday mornings, the guys that are right here right now in the space camp, the, guy, the, the men and women in my life group, I've seen people who are dwelling places, the living God. And what does that look like if we're going to become temples of the living God? Well, first it talks about this idea of joining together. So I'm not even going to do my, you guys can formulate your own pronunciation of what that word is right there exactly. But what is awesome is it only occurs twice in the entire Bible, and it only occurs in this passage. Okay, And it's the idea of joining together this structure out of disparate materials into one complete new whole. Okay? And that's important because if we're going to become the temples of living temples of the living God here on earth, then it's probably wise to figure out what was it that the old temple did in the first place. And the first thing it did was it housed the name. And this is one of my favorite parts in the entire Bible. It says, but will God really dwell on earth among men? Right? The heavens, not even the highest heavens can contain you, much less this building that I've created. So if that was true of the, this massive, grandiose structure, then what is it to say of our lives? And yet, God chose to be the place where he put his name. And more specifically, he tasked Solomon with building the temple specifically to house his name. And whose name is that? That's the same name that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they were counted worthy of suffering for it. And whose name is that? That's the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name. That's the purpose. That's the temple. It's the dwelling place of the name. More than that, so what did it do in the lives of the believer? Okay, What was it designed for? Solomon in his de- prayer dedication asked that God's eyes would be open toward this temple. And if we're going to be living temples, then maybe these are, are the same for us. So Solomon asked God that his eyes would be open toward the temple day and night, that he would hear the prayer of, the, of his servants, that he would hear the supplication of his servants, and that when he heard, he would hear and forgive. And he would forgive when uh, one of the neighbors did wrong to each other, when Israel had been defeated, or when people come into our lives defeated, or when the heavens have been shut up from their reign, and they no longer pour out their bounty, people come into our lives whose financial lives or their, their, their economic lives have been devastated, or when the people were plagued by famine or plague, or people come into our lives broken physically, suffering from disease, or when they go off to war. And Lord knows uh, we've got plenty of people in here that have been off to war, been on deployments. And ultimately, when we sin, that we have a place to go, that Israel had a place to go when they sinned, that they could have restitution, that they could have that, have that healed. But what's even more amazing to me is this idea of this prayer 
that Solomon prays. He says, when the foreigner comes, do whatever the foreigner asks of you, Lord, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and know and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I've built bears your name. And think about it. I, and I've talked to a lot of people here. All those people, those people that are foreigners from God right now or that don't know God, that come into our lives, do they come here and we ask God to answer their prayers for the purpose of them believing and knowing that this is a house that bears your name. And the interesting thing is, is if this is the temple, right? The temple bore the Lord's name. Anybody that wanted to know about God, if you were back in that time, then you knew where to go to find it, okay? The amazing part is, in my life at work, where I'm at work, do people know? Do I bear his name to, to the degree that they know? You want to know about Christ? Go talk to that guy, right? The only purpose for even going into the temple. In fact, you might get killed if you went in there uh, and you shouldn't have been there. The only purpose that you'd have in going there was to get closer to his name, to have a face-to-face interaction with his name. And then as Joe Terry talked about last week, is there was, it was this building with temples, or excuse me, with walls and with guards. And the idea of keeping, separating the holy from the profane, the noble, keeping it separated from the ignoble. And the sad part of the thing that kind of overwhelms me a little bit is right now I feel terribly uncomfortable using profanity or vulgarity in front of you guys. I'd, be, I'd feel pretty uncomfortable if I put some racy joke or a blue-colored joke up there on the screen. Why wouldn't I feel just as uncomfortable if I'm carrying around the temple of the Lord with me at work and engaging in the same thing? And I'm telling you, you know, there at work, especially in the military and the Marine Corps, it seems like it's easy to slip into that. It almost becomes another vocabulary, okay? What's funny to me, though, is that they did this great job of building temples, building, they got walls, they got guards, and they're doing a good job of keeping the noble, the ignoble out and the, the profane, keeping it all out. Except that they let, the, they, they let it in. You know, who were these nasty people they let in? All these nasty little sinners who brought the ignobility and the profanity and the vulgarity in with them. How did they get in? And that's why I suspect that the very first thing you run into once we get into the temple, into the inner sanctuary, is this bronze altar, Okay. The bronze altar of sacrifice, where daily, twice daily, they had to sacrifice for the sin of Israel and on each occurrence. Okay? So what I would ask in my life and in your life and our lives, okay, is there this reflection of constant sacrifice, so this, of this realization of our need for forgiveness of sin? Is it this constant battle to keep a short account with God? We have the ability to put it right on the altar in our lives. If we're living temples, is that the first thing that people run into? And then having seen that, then there's this idea of this bronze wash basin. The, the, the sea is what they call it. This idea of the ability to cleanse, cleanse the sacrifices, but also cleanse the priests. And this idea, before they could approach the living God, before you can go deeper into this person's life, before you can go deeper into my life, is there's this idea, this desperate reliance on the blood of Christ. Randy Newman, I thought, did it really well this, uh, at the retreat. Reminding us. I mean, he, he goes back to Bible 101, Gospel 101. Hey, what, what's important? What's important is the blood of Christ. And is that important? Is that so obvious that it's important in my life? Then, if we have dealt with our sin, acknowledged it, and we have been cleansed, then we're ready to enter into the inner sanctuary okay, of this living sanctuary, of this living temple. And the first thing we would run into is the golden lampstand. And what's amazing to me is this... I think is representative, and I think the Bible bags it up, of the light of Christ, the light of the world. 
that came into the world. And the interesting thing about this light is that the structure itself is built out of this rough hewn stone. And on the inside, it's lined with cedar lining. And then on the inside of that, you have gold plating on the inside. So you basically have this giant box filled with lampstands plated with gold. Right? So you have all this light reflecting off there. It must have been, I think, maybe even a little overwhelming, a little penetrating with that light. So my question to myself and us is, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says, let your light so shine before men, see your good deed, and praise your Father in heaven. So what I ask myself and what I ask us is, when people are broken, when they're hurting, do they look into our lives, right? Do they look in my life as a temple? Is this somewhere that they want to enter to see the truth of Christ, that overwhelming, penetrating truth through brokenness, okay? And if they are, then the next thing that we'd see is this altar of showbread, all the way down associated with each one of the altars or the golden lampstands. And I think this speaks to Jesus as the bread of life, the new covenant in his body. So we're told in Matthew 4.4 uh, 4, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How desperate am I to take on and to take in the word of Christ, the word of God every day? Is it a desperation? Is it, and if it's bread, and again, there's not many of us that want to fast for more than one day, how desperate am I for it? And I'll tell you, what's a joy? There's a few people in this room that I've interacted with, and it's such a joy to see their desperate reliance on the Word of God, that you see that, see it. It's not even something that they would tell you about. It's something that, you, I don't go around telling people, man, I'm kind of a, I like to eat a lot, right? You can see it, right? Okay, all right. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay, I don't run as much. Okay, the altar of incense. Then as we get closer to the Holy of Holies, the last thing before we go in there is this altar of incense, and we know from Revelation that incense is representative of the prayers of the saints. So as much as we're feasting on the Word, is there this continuous, desperate reliance on prayer? Is it this constant offering up? Again, they didn't say that they offered incense at different parts of the day. It was a constant thing. Is there constant light? Is there constant feasting on the Lord? And is there constant prayer? There is. That's, that's a pretty awesome living sanctuary. And then as we get closer, if the temple were still here, then what we would see is we'd see the, the curtain that, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. We'd see it torn. We'd have direct access to the holy place, or the, the most holy place. Sorry about that. Do I enter God's presence that I have in my heart boldly? Okay? And if I enter it boldly, then we're told that with Moses, that his countenance was changed, having spent time with God. Does my countenance change after intimate time spent with God? Having set aside that time of reading and prayer and spending time with God, advancing boldly into God's presence, does it change? And I'm telling you, I've seen it in the room, I've seen it at the life group, is people's countenance do change. There's something different, right? And then the last part here is that what's amazing to me is they're in the, the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which we're told there's three articles in there at different points. You have the, the stone tablets, the law. You have Aaron's staff that budded, and you have a jar of manna. But what's interesting is on top of all these Old Testament articles or symbols, you have this thing called the mercy seat, which I always thought was funny because when I first became a Christian, I was like, mercy seat? Who's sitting in there, you know? I was like, that seems like an odd place. I want mercy. And you go in there and you sit on it or something. And then I realized, oh, okay, it's not a seat. It's another word for a covering, a mercy covering. You know, it's the seed of it, the covering of the ark. And I thought, holy cow. The three New Te Old Testament articles that describe the law, that describe God's restorative power, bringing life back into a dead staff, 
that describes God's eternal provision of bread from heaven is covered and unified and tied together by one thing. Mercy. That God cares about us enough that he is merciful. So I'd ask this, and this was a tough one for me when I first got married um, to my current wife. If, we, if you asked my wife and kids, if I asked yours, would they say, would they exhibit, would they say they see genuine contrition when you know you've made a mistake and genuine humility in dealing with their mistakes? I don't know. I hope it's something that, do they see us throwing ourselves on the mercy seat every day? If not, then I suspect there might be a chance that there might be uh, what uh, John R. Stott, so one of the books that I was re- given to read to read about this, is he talks about two temples, one pagan, one Jewish, both empty at this time. So we talk about this. He's in Ephesus, Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is right there when he's writing this thing. It's the center of Blackstone worship, which oddly enough is not the last time that we're going to hear about that. Okay, this idea of Blackstone worship and meteorites, uh, it happens right now in the Kaaba. But it's easy to point fingers at that because it's obvious. It's like, okay, well, that's not a Jewish thing. But at this time, the Jewish temple, after the death of Christ, who's inhabiting that temple? God has already said that he's moved his temple somewhere else. So what does it look like to have an empty temple? I have this good friend that I've known for a little while. And uh, I looked, and I'd known him for, for years, but hadn't really been friends with him. He looked beat up worn down, overthrown, crushed. His son um, has uh, autism, and he's an adult. Uh, He had some divorce problems a while ago, some financial problems. Everything seems crushing when when you deal with him, and yet he's a good man. And I asked him, I was like, do you have joy? Is there any peace in your life? Are you you content and happy? And a lot of times, whenever I've talked to atheists, they're like, yeah, I am. Leave me alone. And they would be like, kind of, Give me the Heisman. But he actually sat there really uncomfortably for a long time, <laughs> kind of staring at me, and was like, no, no, I don't. I was like, wow, oh, oh awesome. Well, would you like it? You know, would you like some joy? Would you like peace? Would you like grace? And he, again, he's staring at me for a long time, a little unnerving. And he's like, yeah, but here's the problem, is that if I want that stuff, then I have to invite God into my life. I have to accept his grace. And I have to give him control of my life. And I want to be in charge. And he says, and the last thing he said, we're standing in the parking lot next to my car. It's just a week ago. And he goes, and more than that, can he really do it anyway? Will God really dwell among men? He will. Okay. He proved it at Pentecost. And he comes in the lives of the believers. His Holy Spirit comes in there. More than that, we're not asked. We're commanded. We're reminded. That we're temples of the living God. Our bodies, our lives do not belong to us anymore. We're bought at a price. We are no longer our own. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. And more than that, we are a letter written by the hand of God. So C.S. Lewis, I think, said is that we might, our lives might be the only gospel that anyone ever reads. And specifically, he talks about this idea that you are a letter of Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So, sanctuaries and trees. I always thought this was funny. It's like, okay, we're pictured, saints are pictured as sanctuaries, but God doesn't need a place to live. He's not homeless. And you see it, we're pictured as trees, but what's producing good fruit. But I always thought, I never seen a tree eat a fruit, you know? Trees don't eat their own fruit. 
right? So the only thing that, can, that leads me to is we're sanctuaries or trees for other people, for God's people. That that's the only reason that we're a sanctuary or a tree. Because we're not for, we can't add any value to God. We lack the capacity except for through our obedience. We add immense capacity to the people he loves. So uh, now this is the uncomfortable part. Uh, you guys, I, I heard everybody sing there at the men's retreat before chow. We're not singing before a chow now. But everybody, I think, knows this song. And I think it captures what it is. Prepare me to be a sanctuary, a living sanctuary. So if you guys would join me, and then we'll get to the discussion question. Okay? All right, here we go. And I stink at singing. So, so if you guys aren't loud, this is going to be embarrassing for everyone. Okay, especially me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. Awesome. Again, you saw, uh, I can't sing very well. <laughs> All right, so these are the discussion questions I'd like you to consider, if you would. Um, the first one, if we did act deliberately, like if we did act deliberately like an operating temple of God, what would that look like today? And then number two, what has it been like when you've entered the life of someone who acts as an op- operates as a living temple? And then three, what would be the most striking change our wife and kids would notice if we began operating deliberately like a temple of the Lord? Thanks.